G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Imagine if you spend all your day on the internet, on a webcam, arguing with people you disagree with. And not just people you disagree with, people who hold ridiculous, uh, intentionally divisive, hysterical ideas, and you're just trying to make them uh, bring some sanity to what they, uh, what they believe. That's the fate of Destiny, today's guest. Destiny is the uh, nom de plume of uh, Stephen Bonnell II, uh, who is a young gentleman. <laughs> now I feel like Ed Sullivan. A young gentleman on the program today uses the internets uh, to communicate with other people he disagrees with. Destiny started out as a video game streamer. He was one of the first people to professionally, full-time stream his own video games. If that's something, if that's a world that you're not familiar with, uh, trust me, it's massive. Uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world sit down and watch other people play video games. And if you're good, and if you can sort of narrate them in a charming and whimsical way, uh, then uh, you can get a lot of followers, and with a lot of followers and a lot of viewers, a lot of money. Uh, That is and was the full-time job of Destiny, until he realized he could also stream political arguments, cultural arguments, with people mainly from the right, uh, and poke holes in them. And post those videos to YouTube as well as uh, as well as just streaming them. That is his full time job. He's massively influential online. I first came across him on Twitter, where he is omni liberal. You'll find out what that means. And he had these kind of scathing Twitter thread takedowns of uh, right wing nonsense. And I, I, I felt I had something of a soulmate in this omni liberal character who would occasionally parachute in and talk about the same sorts of things that I was talking about with the same kinds of jackasses who I was trying to defend myself against. Um, so uh, someone tried to connect us on Twitter. A few fans said, hey, you guys should chat. And this is the result of that chat. Uh, he currently has, let's see how popular he is, uh, 689,000 subscribers on the YouTube, uh, 174,000 followers on that ill-fated uh, shit pile of a site known as Twitter. And uh, I mean, when when we had this conversation, we did it via video and uh, I allowed him to stream it uh, very magnanimously of me, I must say, to his hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And this conversation that you're about to hear or see when he posted on his YouTube as at the time of recording, now has 210,000 views and 698 comments, uh, some of them such as this one. It's amazing how good a conversation can be when Destiny decides to talk to someone who doesn't have a mental disorder. So, you know, that's a low bar, but I'll take it. It's a compliment of sorts. Um, so suffice it to say, I'm talking to somebody who ha- who has a large enough audience that this conversation you're about to hear has a larger audience on his platform than it's likely to on mine. He's a fascinating guy. Uh, he now his YouTube is basically full of uh, of videos that say things like "Destiny gets dogpiled in heated debate" or uh, uh, "Andrew Tate defender flips after secret convo leaks." Or indeed, uh, ABC radio host makes destiny hesitate, comma, fact checks him live. Uh, No prizes for guessing which ABC radio host uh, that is. Nonetheless, I hope you find this stimulating. The one and only Omniliberal, a.k.a. Destiny, a.k.a. Stephen Bonnell. What are we doing? What are we chatting about? What are we chatting about? Here? 
Why are you even here? Well, because I liked you on Twitter, and then I was like, this, uh, this cat's interesting, uh, so I should probably talk to him. Are you feeling more or less drawn to having political debates these days? Um, I, firstly, I just want to say the biggest red flag I've ever heard in my entire life is somebody likes my behavior on Twitter. That's probably where I'm the <laughs> well, most unhinged. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm burying the lead a little bit because I also wanted to talk about whether or not uh, that's getting worse, whether or not your behavior on Twitter is, uh, is following the same trajectory as everything on Twitter and just becoming more gotcha. and more winnowed into like a silo of irrelevance. Okay. Um, and then the second part was, do I prefer to talk about politics? Um, I mean, it really depends on what's topical. Like sometimes there are fun things going on politically to talk about. Other times we're talking about trans issues for 12 or 13 years in a row, it feels like. Uh, so, I mean, really just depends on the, depends on the issue. You don't feel moral. You don't feel it's a more or less constructive pursuit at the moment than it was. Um, is it a more or less constructive pursuit? It, it It's always constructive, but it's hard to see the constructiveness and all the chaos. Like, I think you're always doing good by having a conversation. But um, obviously, with all of the, the noise and the chaos of political discourse, it's hard to see that sometimes. But, like, I get emails from people. I see posts sometimes where people saying, like, oh, I used to believe this and I don't believe this. Or, oh, I'm still right-leaning, but I'm not as far right-leaning. Or, you know, I thought this conspiracy was true and I don't. So, yeah, I try to look for that. When And when you say you're always doing good in having a conversation, by you there, do you mean you or does you, do you mean one? Like, is it is it good when Ben Shapiro is doing a slapdown uh, takedown of somebody, of some hopeless workster who can't fight back? Or do you mean you personally? I mean, it's good for him, right? Um, I mean, it's good when one, whenever one's voice is being heard, that's probably generally a good thing. As long as one isn't making a buffoon of him or herself, yeah. Or themselves. Right. But what if you're making a buffoon of somebody else? Yeah, Uh, then it probably, people like to watch people trash other people. Makes people... Is is that the same as good, though? (laughs) Is is the fact that people like it the same as it being constructive? Well, not necessarily. That's why I said good. I'm using good in a very relative sense. When I say good here, I mean good with respect to building one's platform. Right. So if your goal is to build a platform, oftentimes in political debate or any kind of debate, it one usually looks good trashing the opposition. So that could be a pro-lifer making a killer argument that shuts down an immoral uh, pro-choicer. Or it might be a pro-vaccinated guy shutting down an anti-vax guy. It might be Ben Shapiro dumping on college students. It might be me talking to people to change my mind event like it could be anything. Yeah. I think generally people like to see their guy win and they'd like to see the opposition position look dumb or get crushed where does that lead us though that that style of conversation um what world war one or world war two i guess yeah. <laughs> or, so, um, we've yeah, had both know, of like, those we're, we're looking yeah. for the third and fourth now third third and fourth third and final maybe, maybe. um like you know what i'm getting um, at so here's what i'm getting at mm-hmm. the, i feel and many of my colleagues feel a certain level mm-hmm. of exhaustion and dis uh, and, and like alienation from the initial project of winning hearts and minds through having smackdown arguments with people and owning them and and a certain weariness about the whole project and <clears throat> certainly throughout covid i feel like colleagues of mine have gone off the rails in one direction or another i'm not including you in that uh, but, but COVID may have enough the whole of world them. absolutely crazy, but yeah. I mean, man, you know, I went on I went on Joe Rogan's show and called Tim Pool a dum dum, and then I had to go off Twitter for about six weeks because just you just see what humanity is like when you call Tim Pool mm-hmm. a dum dum, right? I mean, this is not a necessarily a constructive way of uh, of ascertaining whether or not, in fact, Tim Pool is a dum dum uh, yeah. <laughs> to just be smacking each other back and forth over the head about it. So this mission that I have of sort of constructing as many intelligent arguments with as many people as possible, hearing them, meeting them 
them where they are, being as generous as possible to the other side, steel manning other arguments, uh, trying to grope towards a, a, a shared reality and a, and a common truth can feel uh, like an increasingly fruitless pursuit when the main clicks and the main lols come from uh, caricaturing the other side, finding the weakest possible person who can articulate that side and then smacking them down. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there are firstly there's a probably a time and a place for everything like there can always be like there probably is a time where you need to see somebody get shut down really hard and it is satisfying and they've completely and totally earned it right some crazy bigoted person some crazy evil person over watching a person get shut down really hardcore might be a good feeling um there are probably other times where being more educational is good there's probably times where being more empathetic or understanding can be good uh, right now, the, the major divide that I see in the world is that people are trapped in these echo chambers that tend to reinforce internal voices and then shun or discourage the pursuit of external voices. So all of the epistemic truths are, are centered on just a couple voices, and then all the other forms of knowledge are basically shunned. And for me, I found that when somebody's in an echo chamber, oftentimes leaning into them in an aggressive manner just reinforces their point of view right there's like a thing that happens like imagine you're in a relationship with somebody and you know you say to your girlfriend like hey i just want you to know you fucked up today and let me tell you why that conversation is never going well right that con- or like when you start basically when you start off with an aggressive tone somebody's brain will instantly flip a switch and now they're in kind of like character defense mode they're not going to listen to anything you say because now you're attacking them personally or it feels like a character attack so i found that the best way to kind of penetrate into other worlds other kind of echo chambers is to try to avoid the really aggressive and dominating tone and be more like listen i understand you've got problems i know what your issues are but like maybe i can provide like a little bit more of a reasonable solution than you guys who literally want to tie anchors yourselves and jump off cliffs you know mm. well, and so what's driving the echo chamberification of the conversation um man i don't have a satisfying answer for that yet i know there's Is a lot of like, discrete things it's a it's a lot of things i think that um it's just a lot of things um fuck i should i should put together like a presentation there's so many different <laughs> ideas in my mind that i'm sorry that's not satisfying to say that there's Maybe a write a book. One, so yeah so one has to do with a um One has to do with kind of like a a bubble effect when one is trapped in a bubble. And bubbles can appear naturally, right? You have a certain amount of friends that all kind of believe similar things. You go on Facebook or Twitter, and because you follow them, you tend to see certain things. So you create kind of this like epistemic bubble where you just see certain types of news and that's it, you know? And people in that world are pretty easy to kind of break out of that world. Somebody might think, oh my God, like I think that, um, I think that, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, was a murderer. He went and shot 50 people and did blah, 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 blah. And that's just because they've only seen one type of news. For that type of person, you can go to them and you say, hey, well, look at this. And then you show them something different. They're like, "Mm, okay, maybe I'll change my mind. But there's like been a more intensification of that where people are, it's not just that they see one type of media. It's now that people are showing them one type of media. They're also actively discrediting other types of media as well. This more hardcore, this more pernicious effect is causing people to not trust any sort of external sources. So people are becoming in in almost like a cult fashion, addicted to or reliant on one or two like epistemic sources for truth. And everything else is just like total garbage. So if, for instance, so if you believe in, um, I'll say like Tim Pool or Alex Jones or any of these other kind of like alt alternative media outlets because you believe them and because you follow them almost by virtue of that you also necessarily distrust everything any government agency has to say. 
So you get kind of captured into this weird world where it's like, okay, how do you feel about, say, vaccines? Well, here's what I heard from Joe Ro- on a Joe Rogan show. Here's what I heard from Tim Pool. Here's what I heard from Alex Jones. And then it's like, okay, well, what about this, this, or this? But all of the evidence you show comes from, like, academic journals or government institutions or medical agencies. Well, I don't trust those because I know that they're captured. Well, so, yeah. Also, I Not have my that, whole suite of other experts research, yeah. over here who I can, like, I have a whole bunch of mm-hmm. other people with PhDs, right? I mean, you can always, there are enough PhDs in the world that you're going to be able to find someone to reinforce At least your one or two. crazy uh, opinion. Uh, so, yeah. you know, the credibility argument sort of, or the argument from authority goes out the window when there are a whole bunch of people pushing and amplifying the tiny minority of experts who disagree with the mainstream point of view. Yeah. I mean, when, when I hear you say that, I can't help but think that we're, that this, this chamber or this, this, this like echo chamber is, is a function of algorithms, which, I mean, there's this cliche about social media that like you, it only shows you things that you already agree with, which is mm-hmm. nonsense, of course. I see lots of stuff on social media that I don't agree with. But the stuff that I see that I don't agree with is stuff that is maximally designed to reinforce the fact that it's stupid or that it, that it aggravates me, right? So you see charitable versions of things you agree with and uncharitable versions of things that you don't agree with. So it either, it either makes you feel better about prejudices that you already have or assumptions that you already have and better about hating the things that you hate because you're only saying when you're talking about, I don't know, <clears throat> transgender people, or let's not even pick on trans people, let's just say like uh, drag queen story hour, <clears throat> instead of seeing... Uh, people dressed up as clowns reading to children, you see the one viral example of the dude with gigantic fake, fake breasts twerking in front of five-year-olds, and uh, mm-hmm. that's the one that the algorithm chooses to propagate because that's the one that people click and like and comment and get outraged yeah. about. So mm-hmm. I, don't know how to, I don't know how to get out of that Chinese finger trap. How do we? Yeah, I, that's, it's, um, it's a really, really hard one. Um, I don't have satisfying answers for any of these questions. I'm aware of all of it, but I don't know how to make other people aware of it. Um, I'll start quoting uh, the um, Scott Alexander articles. There's the one I talk about a lot. Have you heard of like the Chinese bank robber fallacy? No, you're heard of this. Yeah, basically the idea that like if I show you a thousand new Chinese bank robbers every single day, does that mean that Chinese people are more likely to rob banks than anybody else? And you know, intuitively we want to say yes, but the reality is there are so many Chinese people. A thousand a day might not even come close to the per capita rates that any individual ethnic group might rob. Uh, stores, you know, and it's that 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 thing carries over for every other thing in society, right? If I can show you one brutal killing every single week, where a cop kills an unarmed black person, right? Is that the end of the world? Does that mean that our whole system is corrupt? Well, maybe, but like people don't even know how many cops are in this country. They don't know how many black people are in this country. They don't know how many police interactions happen. But even without knowing that, people are still keen to make a big judgment on how good or bad things are. Right. However. How good or bad things are are absolutely a function of how many times an event occurs, you know? So, you know, like if my child goes hungry one night because you forget to feed your child, I mean, that's a horrible thing, of course. But if that happens like half of the times they're with you, there's a huge difference mm. between these two things, you know? <clears throat> and it also yeah, depends whether, so, yeah. so it depends whether or not the cherry picking is also reinforcing a pre-existing narrative that the person has, right? There is no narrative of Chinese people robbing banks for us to feel affirmed by when we see Mm -hmm. cherry-picked evidence of that. There is, however, among the black community, a narrative of, with justification, I should add, a narrative of, uh, of police shooting them. Uh, maybe not to the extent that uh, that has become you know understood widespread when you actually dig into the numbers, but they weren't they weren't making this up. And similarly, if you're on the right and you have a narrative that gay people are trying to convert your children, and you see mm-hmm. a gay pride rally where people are saying, as I did the other day, we're here, we're queer, we're coming for your kids, like. <laughs> 
that that's what the gay people were chanting. Now, I'm married to mm-hmm. a guy and I can say I've never been to a pride rally where we were chanting, we're coming for your kids. Uh, it, but it reinforces a pre-existing uh, narrative, right? I mean, if they, if they were chanting, we're here, we're queer, and we want to kill all the octopuses in the ocean, it wouldn't go viral because everyone would be like, hang on, I didn't know that gay people want to kill octopuses, but they do know that gay people are trying to convert their kids into being fags. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, it's a challenging one. And then the people that are hunting for this information aren't even genuinely trying to get an idea of what's going on. They just have, a, like you said, there's like a preconceived notion. And you could probably find any data point you want um, to fit any any argument you want to make. I think it's called, um, it's like illusory pattern perception or something, or where basically, like, if you're looking for patterns, you can basically invent any pattern you want. Because at least in my country, there's some 330, 340 million people. I can find you cases of anything. You know, I, there was a guy, that same Scott Alexander guy, wrote a compelling, like, three paragraphs about how cardiologists in the United States are some of the worst people in the world. And it's because, he, you know, he quotes, like, 15 or 20 different cases. And it's like, well, they seem pretty bad. But it's like, is that actually more than any other group of people? You know, c- keep in mind that humans are keen to recognize patterns. Patterns, and we'll do it after two or three encounters. Somebody telling you something like, oh, I don't like Indian people. Like, they, they're horrible. They've probably had, like, one or two bad experiences with an Indian person. And that's enough for people to make an entire, you know, sweeping generalization of everybody. And people don't realize that all the time. Mm, that's so. right. And, I mean, this is one of the reasons why people who are not in very diverse communities can be more certain about how suspicious minorities are than people who live amongst them. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's, the, it's always the pastor in Alabama who's quite certain about the way that Muslims behave. It's not the people who live in Queens around lots and lots of Muslims. True. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's uh, that saying that like racism doesn't usually survive first contact. That like if you're sufficiently um, socializing with groups of people, like it's hard to maintain a lot of stereotypical beliefs because yeah, there are a lot of different types of people. Yeah. The um, something real quick on what you were saying before about like the what do you do for people? Do you know? Have you ever heard of Peter Boghosian? Yeah, I had him on the show. Yeah, he has a really interesting set of questions that I ask sometimes, like asking, for instance, somebody like, how much conviction do you have about a certain idea? And, you know, usually people will say like, ah, you know, nine or 10, I'm very have a high conviction about this. And then you ask them like a certain number of questions like, well, how often does this thing happen? It's like, well, I don't know. Like how like how many bad drag queen activities are there in the United States? It's like, well, I saw three on libs of TikTok. Okay, how long has this been going on for? Yeah. How many thousands of these? Ha- right. Then, yeah, eventually I think people kind of really like, ah, oh, fuck. Okay, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't just make my whole world be on what I see on TikTok. Totally. But- and even mm-hmm. self-proclaimed experts do this. I heard, who's the anti-trans guy, Matt Walsh? Or, well, I always get confused. Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh. Not an expert, though, but yeah, uh, Matt Walsh is not, indeed a member of the Daily Wire. <laughs> not an expert, but claims to be. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if he claims to be. He certainly certainly presents himself as, a, you know, he's made a documentary about it. He's written books about it. He went on Joe Rogan and uh, Joe was like, how many children have uh, undergone this, uh, this procedure of, you know, under the age of 12 getting irreversible uh, treatments and he was like oh it'd have to be and i don't know what figure he millions gave, but like, yeah i think he said millions right do you know he this he said millions and joe's like jamie look this up and jamie's like i think it's a thousand <laughs> or something in yeah. a country of 330 million people and you're like matt mm-hmm. you don't even know you're out by by orders of magnitude you're out by thousands or multiple of times orders of magnitude. multiple yeah, orders of Jesus. magnitude yeah. The number ended up being like 5,000 over five years, I right, think. We right. were like so far off. Four, yeah. Three or four orders of magnitude there. Jesus, yeah. Um, but, who's better at persuasion then, the left or the right at this point? 
Um, there are so many types of ways to persuade people. I think both the left and the right can be persuasive, but I think it's going to come down to the topic and it's going to come down to who's going to argue. I don't know if I would ever broadly say, like, I think there are some arguments that the left is incredibly compellingly persuasive on, like stuff related to healthcare. It's really hard to argue against like people dying because they can't afford proper insulin or they can't afford healthcare in the United States. Um, and then people on the right, it's hard to argue against the idea that like, should your whole life be destroyed because you, you know, tweeted something offensive 10 years ago? Um, or should there be like kind of weird people talking to your kids about weird things? Like some of these things are make me uncomfortable as a father. Um, so yeah, I think, but, but then like when the left is arguing that like we should be able to have abortions up to nine months, I don't think a lot of people are feeling that when the right is saying, you know, if you want to have like a, you know, a murder X3X 3000 gun, you know, 5,000 shooting bullets into wherever with no restrictions at all, you know, a lot of people are like, do you really need that rifle? You know, that's probably not compelling either. Um, I think it really depends on the argument and who's making it, on which side is compelling for what, yeah. I mean, that's a substantive sort of claim, I suppose, about the nature of the particular case. And it also raises the question of what even is the left and what even is the right at this point, because I know mm-hmm. many, many leftists who are old, unreconstructed, like 1970s Marxists who, don't, who have no truck for wokeism. Um, mm-hmm. so, but, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of rhetoric, it strikes me that the right is better at caricaturing the left than the left is at caricaturing the right. And I'm not sure if that is a consequence of tactics or a consequence of the left leaving itself more vulnerable by providing ammunition that the right can then misuse or if it's because people give the right a pass because they think that they're supposed to be assholes anyway. Um I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I feel like it probably depends on what type of media you consume. Like, there is a caricature of a right-leaning person who's just like a MAGA hat-wearing, gun-toting, you know, uneducated, white trash idiot that the left likes to perpetuate, you know. Um, And then there's caricatures that the right likes to perpetuate as well. Um, As for who does it better, I feel like it'd be really hard to quantify. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. So what what are we talking about when we talk about the left? Is, Is the word woke anything more than a cliche at this point? What does it mean for you? Um, woke to me is like the next evolution of like the SJW, basically people that are maybe hyper conscientious around like identity politics and class politics in a way that goes probably farther than what it should. Identity politics and class politics. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. That's interesting because I kind of think of those two things as being separate strands of the left. And some of the people who I know who are the most agitated about class are more skeptical of the identity component of uh you know thinking that minorities uh should be elevated aggressively that equity is a different thing from equality um Mm -hmm. that the that liberalism is old-fashioned that the kind of obama martin luther king vision of a race-blind america is naive and then the people who are on that bandwagon strike me as being less concerned actually about class and less concerned about genuine economic uh, equality, which arguably could win them more elections if they were more of a Bernie Sanders type of uh, leftist than an identitarian type of, of leftist. And one of the critiques, I think, one of the valid critiques of, of the left at the moment of wokeness or social justice uh, leftists is that they don't spend enough time talking to the working, the working man, the working middle. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I, it really depends. Like, I, depending on how far left you go, like, it gets woke and then unwoke and woke and then unwoke. Like, if you don't go so far left, some people will say things like class is the only thing that matters and who cares about race. And then if you go further left, you get people who say, like, oh, no, we need to be, like, very conscientious about, like, MLK and all this stuff. And then if you go further to the left than that, then some people are literally falling, like, actually, MLK was a loser and we need to have, like, a civil war or we need to go full on segregationist. Black people need black spaces and, you know, get them away from, like... Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that is, that is becoming a mainstream, that is becoming the mainstream center of gravity on the left, I would say. And, and the idea that it's naive to assume that we will ever get beyond race. 
I mean, it's here's here's the major division that I'm seeing more today because dividing on via, via left or right is kind of hard. I think that the the main division I'm seeing today is like a it's like a establishment and anti-establishment narrative, and these are like the two trends that are running large in both parties. That in the in the left you've got like the establishment Democrats, and then you've got kind of like the anti-establishment progressives. Now politically, I think that the establishment has like 90 to 95 percent capture, and the Democratic establishment and the uh, the anti-establishment people have like five to ten percent but they're very 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 loud in schools on twitter in protests if you go to the right i think it's almost split like 60 40 with 60 percent being anti-establishment these are like the trump supporters they don't care about government they don't care about the republican party they barely care about the country they just will follow trump wherever and then 40 percent are more kind of like pro-establishment like republican establishment people but i feel like that's where the big divides are to try to explain what people are thinking about today has that happened like post- I, were- sorry finish the thought I was gonna say like like I sometimes I go to events. I remember that I went to an event before where people always pat themselves on the back where they're like, "Oh, look at how diverse our audience is," you know. And I think I was at some conference in New York, and they were like, "Oh, like and like half the audience was left and half the audience was right." It's like, "Wow, look how diverse we're." And then I don't remember if I asked the audience to raise their hands, but I think I asked the question like, "Well, how many people are here are like?" opposed to like the cdc or the fda how many of you guys like don't trust the government and that's like 95 percent of people are like in you yeah of course i don't trust it right so even though people seem to be a diverse group of people from the left and right they all have very common sentiment about not trusting the government Mm. not trusting any establishment bodies right yes that is there is this weird horseshoe and that's why i don't even know yeah really what left or right mean i mean tim you know tim paul's a good example jimmy Dore is another one who was uh who was a who was a total dipshit to me when i was on the the young years ago uh, a number of times and uh, I was I think I was pushing back in defense of Hillary Clinton on something and he was like saying that she was a child eating you know monster and I was just saying like she's just a perfectly normal kind of uh, you know she her corruption falls well within the bounds of uh, of normal political conduct and uh anyway he was quite offensive and took me down and now it seems like jimmy Dore, for people who don't know he's a comedian who is so far left that now he's what's he doing now i saw you tweeting about something that jimmy said that was wild he wanted to say that i think biden is more of a fascist than trump but jimmy Dore is one of those types of just he's just anti-establishment if i can find anything the government says or any government body says um he says the exact opposite yeah that's yeah that's it yep so what happened is that a consequence of i mean because it's not just him it's not just tim paul there's a whole cast of characters who started out being uh self-proclaimed fighters for economic justice and uh and against the man and have now become Mm -hmm. tools of some kind of uh, i don't know what is it uh collective of hyper paranoid shit wads on social media uh where did that yeah i don't know that whole like um i I, like i'd heard this said back six or seven years ago that populism runs into this problem where people try it and then once you realize that it doesn't work like you'll get a populist leader elected and then nothing ends up like working out because obviously populists will promise you the sky and deliver you nothing um that once those movements break apart like everybody just kind of is like aimless and lost and i think you saw it happen with um not to attack bernie sanders because i think he's respectable but you saw it happen kind of i think with the bernie sanders movement a lot of big progressives started to come up through that and then once bernie sanders was gone that movement fell into utter chaos and all of those people are like in my opinion horrible people now so like brianna joy gray is a horrible person jimmy Dore is a fucking horrible person all of these people that were like 
part of this big progressive movement. Yeah, we're just like not good people. And then to be fair, like for Trump, his coalition fell apart completely too, right? Like he fired or hated every single ex staff, every single ex his lawyers and everything that worked with him as well. So yeah. So the I end, just don't think those movements maintain a lot of cohesion. Yeah. And the and that populist strain of the right, that uh, that anti author uh, not anti authoritarian, anti establishment kind of strain of the right that you're talking about, where they just basically have a fundamental mistrust of the organs of power, but they don't have a huge ideology beyond that. What's causing that? Do you know? I mean, I, one could have been forgiven for thinking that that was a Trump-generated phenomenon, but uh, you know, now DeSantis is popular. It, does it outlive this moment? It's probably a mixture of a few things. Republicans, by nature, are less trustworthy of the government than Democrats are, so that plays into it a little bit. Um, Trump was very not trustworthy of the government, so obviously he <laughs> amplified that a lot. Um, and they probably just fed into each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I sometimes yeah, wonder I mean, like, Yeah. I wonder whether or not America is entering a phase which some European countries have had where it's just going to have this significant minority of people who are right-wing populists like France has Le Pen and you know there are just these these wings of conservatism that aren't conservative that are actually quite left-wing on uh on economic issues. They're sort of pro-union, they're like pro-worker, they're anti-free trade, they're pro-giving money to people but they're also highly energized about being xenophobic and uh identitarian mm-hmm. towards the white majority yeah i don't know if this existed in real life but online we used to call these people third positioners they were kind of sort of like the online nazis but basically they're people that were very fine with left-leaning economic programs like they'd be okay with socialized health care they'd be okay with uh you know strong unionization big minimum wage they just didn't want like you know brown people to have any of it so they were like very big on racial stuff they were very big on curbing or eliminating non-white immigration stuff like that also it may not be fair maybe we're caricaturing it by saying they don't want brown people to have any of this stuff they would probably say they just don't want brown people to have more of it than the than a race blind policy depending on how honest how many drinks you get i'm usually they'll say like yeah people want to immigrate here they should be coming from europe and not from mexico or muslim majority countries or stuff like that depends who that they are Anybody that supported Trump. <laughs> I mean, Trump pretty avowedly said he wanted to ban Muslims from immigrating into the country. He wanted to build a wall between us and Mexico. He wanted to reduce Mexican... Like, yeah, I mean, he said it all pretty avowedly. Like, I'm just taking him on his word. Right, but, right, yeah. right. I mean, yeah, but you can't necessarily think that all of his voters agree with that. You know, I do think there's some They might some not all agree with it, but they all, they all co-signed it, so... Yeah, they will tolerate it. But then we tolerate a lot of things. We, speaking broadly of the left, from Biden or whatever, or the Clintons that we wouldn't endorse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, dude, my mom and dad are like big, I'm sorry, this whole topic triggers me. My mom and dad are huge Trump ride or die fans. Like they, um, like they will, like I've asked my parents if like, if, if DeSantis was running and Trump won like third party, would they, um, would they follow Trump? Or they said they'd follow Trump off the end of the earth. Like not in those words, but basically the same thing. Yeah. Um, and how do they feel about uh, the criticisms that you make of Trump? Uh, my parents and I fight all the time, but we are, don't agree on anything politically, so it's in one ear out the other. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And when you make an argument like the one you just made, that like, yeah, you might disagree with him about X, Y, Z, but you're you're co-signing it. What do they say? Um, I, I the strange thing is, that, like, my mom is not a hateful person at all, so she'll always have like a very positive framing for everything. So when it comes to, like, banning Muslims from the country, she'll say, like, well, Stevie, Trump just wanted to ban these people because he wanted to find out what was going on because he was worried about terrorists entering our country and we don't have terrorist attacks like 9-11 and blah, blah, blah. Like, or for, 
Yeah, her positions on Mexico are totally incoherent because my family, um, my mom is Cuban and we have a decent chunk of family that came here illegally or escaped from Cuba to come here. And But my mom will say like, well, those people are fleeing for a better life and they're trying to flee, you know, communist Fidel Castro. And I guess now his brother Raul and we should make a space for them. But when it comes to Mexicans doing it, it's like, well, they're, they should stay in their own country and they should try to figure out their own problems. So I, yeah, I don't know. Her positions like that are wholly incoherent. I've tried to like push her on these before, but usually just ends up on us screaming at each other. So it's so, it's so <laughs> funny. Yeah. It's so funny to hear that because my, uh, my grandparents-in-law are, are Cuban uh, refugees to, uh, to the United States as well and are, yeah. are exactly the same. Trump supporting, you know, flag waving kind of maga absolutely yeah it's a funny i remember phenomenon. when um did, were you wait are you been in australia your whole life or no i i moved to the states uh i spent most of my professional life in new york city and i came back okay. here five years ago and uh when i had kids so i was uh I, I was in new york for 12 years gotcha do you know uh do you remember the elian gonzalez stuff oh yeah yeah, yeah, that was a that was like a fucking just explain what happened there to people who for whom that was before their time. Um, oh man, now I don't even trust my recollection because I lived in such a Republican household. This, this is what I recall happened at the time. <laughs> okay, I'll okay. Try okay. To now I'm wondering my parents it. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, this is what I remember happening was I believe Elian Gonzalez was a child who was trying to flee to the United States, and I believe he was on a raft or something with his mom and other Cuban immigrants. This is the and George W. The, Bush administration, probably right? No. Or maybe would it, was Obama in already? It was Bill Clinton. Get out. Bill Clinton. Yeah, that's why people were. I'm almost positive it was. I think it was Bill Clinton. Am I crazy? I'll I'll Google the fact check while you you tell the story. It must have been Bill Clinton. There's no way. Because I don't think my mom would have been. I don't think my mom would have been a Bush fan if it was over this. It must have been Bill Clinton. Um, But um, yeah, uh, Elian Gonzalez was um, on his way here. The raft crashed or something got destroyed somehow. And I believe his mom and other people on the journey died. Yes. I think in the United States, we have a policy that if you make it to U.S. soil, we'll keep you. So Alan Gonzalez got to U.S. soil. Specifically from Cuba. That policy is, yeah, is specifically directed from specifically Cuba. to Cuba. Yeah. It was a Cold mm-hmm. War relic. Yeah. So he made it here, but his father in Cuba wanted him back. Now... My mom was telling me that if they get him back, they're going to torture him and do all sorts of horrible things to him because that's all they do in Cuba, Fidel Castro, evil, blah, blah, blah. And in the United States, it was like an international incident. It was a horrible thing. And I I believe it was Bill Clinton that finally said, we're going to send him back. And my mom was just like, man, you already have to keep in mind after like the Bay of Pigs and everything too for Cubans. Like Cubans already hate the left in the United States. And that was just like a like a whole other thing that like just further proof to my parents that like yeah like these democrats they hate cubans and they hate people that are trying to escape communism because they're all secret commies and blah 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 so yeah especially with like rush limbaugh like cheering her on and everything you know you're right it was 1999 so in november of 1999 wow mm-hmm. that's amazing so i know I, I had no uh, I, I must have been following this from australia because I, I was still in university um mm-hmm. uh, uh, drowned. Uh, his mother drowned. Uh, he was five, and he was found nestled in an, in a tube, floating at sea, three miles from Fort Lauderdale. Uh, fishermen mm-hmm. found him, handed him over to the coast guard, and uh, yeah, the that's right. The policy is called the wet feet, dry feet policy. Dry feet. Yeah, yeah, if you've got dry feet, in other words, if you touch the land, then you're American, right? From Cuba, mm-hmm. but he hadn't. So then there was this argument about: does he stay in the United States, or uh, does he not? Does he get sent back to Cuba? And he got sent back to Cuba. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's just been—you'll be pleased to know—he's just been nominated for a seat in the National Assembly of People's Power. <laughs> so your parents will be delighted well, at guess- what's become of him. <laughs> she probably thinks that that's a clone or a body double. I don't think that, yeah. Uh, um, how did you come to be debating Milo Yiannopoulos, by the way? Um, 
Which time? Was that the first time I talked to him? I think he, I mean, he's like fallen off completely. So he's just like looking for um, whoever will have him. Right. And there were a, a group of college kids that host debates at different colleges, an organization called um, Something America. Oh, man. I hope, can somebody say this in chat? I think it's Uncensored America. Um, Sean is one of the heads of that. He got Miley Yiannopoulos and me to agree to a debate. And we did that debate there. Yeah. Right. Okay. How was that? Uh, horrible. Have you? Did you watch any of it? I watched whatever the short clip that you put on YouTube was. I want to go back and watch the whole thing. It's not worth it. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> just him trying to do personal attacks the whole time and being coked out of his head. Um, the guy's a drug addict, among other things. That's not even his worst quality. So yeah, he's just a horrible person. Yeah, was it worth doing? Um, whether or not something's worth it is. I don't like to judge that necessarily in, in retrospect. I mean, in, in retrospectively, I mean, no, I, I said afterwards that I'm never going to do anything with that guy again because of how absolutely insane he is. Um, but I mean, like the kids wanted me to do it. I try to be cool with like the organizations that invite me. So yeah, I mean, like I, I probably would do it. But if somebody crosses certain lines, I won't associate with that person again generally. Yeah. Is it good for your head? Um, yeah, I can do. I've been streaming and doing stuff for like 13 years. So... I mean, I can handle any type of online stuff. That doesn't bother me. But unfortunately, I have to think of, like, how does it affect other people? What are the optics? You know, how does it make my movement look? How does it make me look? So there's other things I've got to keep in mind, too. But, yeah. What is your movement? Um, I, I mean, I jokingly, we call ourselves omni-liberals because that seems to be, like, the most pretentious prefix I could <laughs> put onto liberal. And the neoliberal thing was already taken. But um, I don't know. Like, I'm a, I'm a pretty staunch liberal. I think most of my values are progressive. But, like, I'm very much rooted in, like, what does the research say? What are the facts on the ground? Like, let's make the best decisions for everybody. Don't get so attached to processes, like, at outcomes. And, um, yeah, like, a really data-driven approach towards, like, effecting some morally good thing, you know? How did you come to stream games full full time in the first place? Long story, but basically, I was a pretty funny, entertaining person playing video games outside my classrooms in high school. Um, a few years later, there was like a very new technology called streaming. A friend turned me on to it. It's like you should try this, maybe it'd be funny, and I did that. And then, yeah, ever since then, I started streaming video games, became a semi pro StarCraft player, and then got into politics in twenty sixteen. How did that happen? Um, Trump, I, well, I've always been like interested in a lot of things. I've always been like relatively politically active. I've got a lot of opinions about stuff. Like even as a gamer, I was super opinionated about things and we talk about a lot of things. And then when Trump started, I was like, man, there's a lot of horrible conversations. Maybe we could like make these a little better. So I kind of jumped in and contributed to the noise, I guess. So at what point do you realize that you're more than, well, are you more, more political than a gamer? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. When does that happen? When, when does that conceptual ch switch Probably, probably 2016, the year I really start to get into it. Um, I realize there's like a lot of entertainment there. There's a lot. There's a big audience for it that hadn't been tapped before. Um, where I started it on was it was a platform called Twitch TV, and nobody really did like politics streaming. It just wasn't really a thing. So for about two years, I basically kind of spearheaded trying to do like politics as like a live stream thing. Um, sometimes Twitch wouldn't like me. A lot of the people on the platform didn't like me because gamers were like very much anti SJW. They hated feminists and all that. So like every person's chat I would go into was a bunch of people calling me. You know, names, a fag, and, you know, a woke loser, SGW, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, but eventually, I kind of, like, carved out a space to where it's like, hey, like, there's uh, politics on Twitch. It's largely left-leaning. And, um, yeah, it, I mean, it seemed there's a lot of, there was an appetite for it, especially on the left, because up to that point, all of the online debater people were always right-leaning. Like, they, they kind of had, like, a, they had a domination, uh, or a, um, there's a word I'm looking for, they had a, where you have all of a thing. Uh, I can't they believe dominated I can't it? Monopoly. Monopoly. 
Yeah, they had a monopoly on the like the facts over feeling stuff. So, you know, right. if there was ever a person in a video where somebody was crying and another person was like spewing facts, it was always like a left leaning person in tears and a right leaning person, you know, screaming. So I was glad to fill the void on the other side there. Why is that? Why is this more the domain of the right? Because I think you're right. I think it's still the case, actually, that there are more people who do what the, the, the style of thing that you do, online streaming political debates who are on the right than on the left. Um, I think I'm going to broadly appeal to, there's going to be a lot of reasons, but I'm going to broadly appeal to the locus of control that the farther left you are, the more externalized your um, situation is. Like if you're on the left, chances are you're where you are because of other things. And then on the right, I think that locus of control is more internal. If you are where you are, it's because of what you've done and externalizing that locus of control probably leads you to uh, on some levels positively probably makes you a bit more empathetic, a little bit more conscientious of other people's circumstances, but it also probably makes you more upset with things, more prone to anger, more hopeless feeling. Um, and then on the right, you probably feel um, if with an internal locus of control, you might have a harder time seeing other people's perspectives or understanding why some people don't succeed. But you probably have a personal feeling of great empowerment. Um, you probably feel like you're more in control and in charge of your life. Um, and, and you can speak with more authority on topics if you don't necessarily you know, know as much about them, I would say. Broadly speaking, I'd say that's probably the reason. Mm. There may also be a problem of there being more nuance in the positions that you're trying to articulate than the ones that right-wing people are trying to articulate, so it's actually harder to do. Depends on how far left or right you go, but maybe, right? I don't well, I mean, think you, you specifically, you're not oh. very far left or right. You know, I mean, you, I, I, I sure. see you trying to tap dance and trying to weave the, the I mean, something that I think I do as well, which is to, to try to weave the most reasonable possible uh, articulation of the point of view that you're presenting rather than caricaturing mm-hmm. the other side. And that requires yeah. a certain nimbleness and a, and a kind of deftness that is uh, probably trickier to pull off than shouting at people and uh, barking slogans. Yeah, yeah. Usually when I'm doing these arguments, I always try to give an example of like the left and the right. So it doesn't sound like I'm just like, oh, like, here's a problem that people have. Right. Um, And it shows up when they're in favor of having guns and in favor of being pro-life and in favor of capitalism. Right. And it sounds like, okay, well, you've you've basically gone to do some research to try to justify why you hate a certain political side. But the reality is we're all human and we all fall into these like cognitive traps. Like one side isn't immune to it by any stretch of the imagination. And so you mentioned Twitch and becoming did Twitch boot you off, by the way? Yeah, they did. For what? I I truly, to this day, I don't know. Um, I, I was fighting with a lot of trans people before I got booted off. It might have been because I called some trans people on Twitter subhuman, but I, I don't know because they haven't told me. So it's hard for me to ever actually know. Yeah. You think Twitch booted you off because of your behavior on Twitter on a different platform? Um, no, no, no. It was while I was streaming on Twitch, I called people on Twitter. People that argue on Twitter are oh, so I human. I, oh, <laughs> yeah. all right. I see. But they, all they did was when they sent me the banning mode, they just said it was for hateful content. So I don't truly, I can't truly know why I was booted off, you know? Is there an inflation of hate? I mean, of our definition of hate? This is something you hear occasionally from the right that like the, the danger here is that anytime you disagree about whether or not, you know, a person has to yeah. respect someone's transgender pronouns or something like that it becomes codified as hate speech and all of a sudden yeah there's you know, definitely an inflation of hate for sure for what counts as like hate yeah absolutely i think what's your response to absolutely, that i think is there one um i mean it depends on the particular hate we're talking about but like people need to chill a lot and understand that there are like different positions um that people can reasonably have yeah, but they would say, sure, there, are, like, there, are hate, there, have always been, there have always been hate speech positions and, like, you know, part of the, the march of progress is to redefine what constitutes hate speech. There are all kinds of things that you can say that you could have said in the, 
well, even 80s, I was going to say 50s, but let alone 1920s, that today would be considered to be hate speech, and and rightly so. Mm -hmm. And so we have to kind of carve out the next generation of taboos. Yeah, I mean, but I can only have like MLK, white moderate, you know, quotes thrown at me so many times before. It's like, yeah, I understand that you guys want to be more radical and whatever, but like just because you pushed the boundaries in the past doesn't mean every single boundary you push in the future is necessarily going to be okay. Like those boundaries in the past that were pushed, I believe they were generally pushed with proper justification. If people are gay and want to be together and then hurting other people, that's fine. If, you know, black people want to be able to go to the same schools and businesses that white people want to go to, that should probably be protected right. Um, should you be able to identify as trans at 12 years old just because MLK did the I have a dream speech? I don't know about that one, right? Should hormones feel... be available to 12-year-olds just because, you know, the Stonewall riots happened for LGBT people? I don't know if that's the case, right? Yeah. But doesn't it feel a bit convenient that the line which you think is the sensible line just happens to be the line of the culture that you are born into that was the one that you were raised in? Um, possibly, but there has to be a better argument than that. It can't just be like, well, isn't it convenient then? Because then we truly do fall down the slippery slope and descend into chaos where people are like, oh, well, you know, black people weren't allowed to go to businesses yesterday and today we're not allowed to have sex with cats. So, you know, who's to say you're in the wrong and I'm not right? right? Like that, that can't be well, it's that just, can't, I'm that not can't saying be the argument, right? It's got to be, it has to be a justification provider, right? I mean, I'm not sure, saying yeah, it's a slam dunk. I'm just saying it, it's mm-hmm. a reason to give one pause or to check yourself, right? To, if, for sure, I agree. If it just so happens, I mean, I always feel like this whenever we're talking to bring it back to healthcare, for example. I mean, during Obamacare, I had a lot of arguments with American conservatives who were like deeply committed to the project of public education, uh, you know, and public funding for the military as it stood, but thought that it was ridiculous to have socialized medicine. And having grown up in a country where it's completely understood that everybody gets free healthcare, uh, I was just like, you know, it just it, it's very convenient that you just happen to think that the contours of government power should fall precisely where they fell when you were coming of age. And so I think there is a cultural component like that as well. I'm not saying that it's that it, you know, as I say, that it's a slam dunk, but it is, it, mm-hmm. at, at any point in time, there is always the middle-aged person railing against the kids these days who have their uppity demands about what the future ought to be and saying, look, why can't we just have some common sense? And common sense always just ha- so conveniently happens to fall precisely where the, the, the contours of the conversation were when they came of age. Yeah, I would never use that. The common sense is like where we're unironically saying common sense is where rational thought goes to die. Because when somebody you're right, when somebody appeals to common sense, they're really generally they're just appealing to like the status quo. They're like common sense guys like this is wrong, right? And really, they're just looking for a consensus where they're at. But um, no, I agree. But like, like I said, I don't make a common sense argument. Like if I'm arguing against certain ideas, if I'm fighting against trans people, or if I'm fighting against, uh, um, I don't know, like, anti uh healthcare people or whatever like i'm generally looking for arguments that are like this is why i believe this thing to be true and this is why i think this is like the better path to move forward i'm not trying to just like make an appeal to common sense generally but i do agree that th- there are some people who probably just want things to chill because they're not comfortable with things moving as quickly as they are you know do you get attacked for not having standing in talking about certain subjects this is something that i bump into quite a lot which is uh you shouldn't even be having a conversation about whether or not to use transgender pronouns because you're not trans you shouldn't be having a conversation about whether or not uh uh, the use of the phrase the n-word is infantilizing to black people because you're not a black person and so on and so forth um 
I usually just act more racist or bigoted towards people that say things like that. I, like, if, it's just, it's such a ridiculous, like, if somebody tells me, like, you shouldn't have this conversation because you're not a woman, then I would just say, like, well, I'm a misogynist and that's why I have this conversation. Or, you know, like, you shouldn't, you know, use this word in this conversation. I would say, well, I actually can use this word because I'm racist. Um, I like I, that. Like, those, yeah, the id pull arguments are so tired at this point. I just, like, I'll pull the plug here. I'll just, like, yeah, I am racist. Like, let's talk about it. Like, because um, once you start buying into the game of, like, well, actually, even though I'm a guy, I think I should be able to talk about it because it affects me and blah, blah, blah. Like, I just like, no, it's such a stupid, like, all of us live in this society. All of us have to abide by the same rules. And all of us, at the end of the day, are the ones supporting, you know, all of these rules. Like, trans people don't get anywhere without cis people supporting them. Women didn't get the right to vote because of a violent revolution against men. They did it because a lot of men supported them. Black people didn't get the right to enter our establishments, um, the United States establishments, because only black people did it because did white people join them, right? We, we have to form coalitions and build majority opinion and get all the people in society involved in these arguments. It's really stupid to say this class of people should only talk about this and nobody else should be allowed to talk about that subject. That's a really dumb argument, mm. in my opinion. I mean, your problem also remember. your problem also is that you don't have a minority to appeal to and uh, claim uh, discrimination back against them. I can always throw it back on well, them and say your anti-Semitism and homophobia is dripping off you every time they accuse me of being bigoted because I occupy two small uh, minority classes. You're just a straight white I team. am uh, half Cuban, so I am very Hispanic. Okay. okay. Uh, Buenos number dias. one. Number, yeah, buenos dias, como estas? <laughs> La biblioteca. Um, secondly, I am um, uh, bisexual, so I get to be the LGBT as well. Okay, I get, okay, people call me names on that. Uh, thirdly, I am a gamer, okay? And in some ways, we are the most oppressed Don't group of people. Don't try to pull that bullshit. That. Okay. I'm a gamer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Number four, I'm also white in the United States, which is also tied for the most oppressed class, especially on Twitter. So, yeah, I yeah. take umbrage. Try with, convincing with the woke of that. I'm sure that they'll be delighted by your oppression as a white male. That'll go down Well, really the right well. would welcome me with open arms, so. This, this is true. Uh, so, Twitter. Yeah. Um, is Twitter healthy for you at this point? <laughs> for me it is i don't know if it is for my fans that watch me engage with it but the, here's my thing i can have a lot of fun online but when i turn it off i'm done with it right do you turn like, it off i think um sometimes i mean it's always fun to go on twitter but what i what i mean is that like um i truly like when i go to sleep at, the, at night like i go to sleep and then i wake up and then i do everything all over again um i'm very like I, now especially having a son i'm very childlike with my anger generally sometimes it works to my detriment and that like if i'm mad at somebody or something i can usually only be mad for an hour or two like it's very rare that i carry this like deep-seated hatred or grudges against people with me throughout most of my life and i maybe even i've gotten in trouble with this because i let people back in a little bit too easily but uh, yeah like i'll go crazy with somebody on twitter um you know and then i'll close it i'll go eat dinner with my wife or like hang out play video games like it's just not something that i carry with me throughout the entire day like i might check twitter later to see if anybody else wants to fight but it's not like having a severely negative emotional impact on me but if it is i think you should probably pull the plug on it like for some people some people are very negatively impacted by twitter like if you're at a point where you're cutting yourself more because of what's happening on twitter than what's happening in real life like you need to it's time to unplug you know (laughs) i get that i wonder what you make of the terrain of, of twitter though has it changed um yeah, but I mean, like, the nature of online stuff is always changing. I definitely see a lot more videos of black people fighting now on Twitter. Thank you, Elon. Um, ever since the, I guess, the algorithms have changed. They know um, what you maybe love. That's just, you love watching black yeah, people fight. Yeah, I guess. Fight. Or maybe it's just, it might just be the you. political, yeah, it might just be the political currents changing as well, that we're, like, getting different focus and everything. I'm sure in six months it'll be something different. But, um, yeah, I well, don't I'm not know. sure I mean, about like, that. Oh, will it? Will it be something different? Or is there, a, is there a winnowing effect where over time it becomes... I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with threads, right? Uh, you know, like, it does, does threads become 
uh, a hostile and uh, polarizing place or does it remain like this sunshine and candy and lollipops uh, Instagram offshoot? Well, that, that may tell us a lot about human nature. Yeah, I have I have no idea. Um, there's a whole back argument to be made about um, about antitrust, and I don't know how. I mean, from a capitalist point of view, I already don't I don't know how Facebook was allowed to buy Instagram. Um, so it feels kind of weird that there's Facebook as a social media, there's Instagram as a social media, and now there's like Threads as a social media all ran by the same company. I think that's a little bit wacky, but that's like a business capitalist, I guess, thing. Um, in terms of like where the culture will go, I feel like Meta is probably more keen to moderate its platforms a bit more intensely than Twitter is. Well, certainly now that like Elon's a, in the picture, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like on Facebook, I feel like you would get in trouble for stuff on Facebook way quicker than you would on Twitter. So especially I mean, I imagine, since, yeah, especially since Zuckerberg clearly has an idea that he wants to make an alternative to Twitter, which is explicitly a more, uh, you know, a more pleasant place to be and a less hostile mm-hmm. place to be. Have you ever deleted Twitter off your phone? Hell no. What do you mean? <laughs> You've, never what, been what You've never been on vacation. You've never been. What if somebody says something really stupid and I've got to re-download the whole Twitter app just to go and fight with them? Are Jesus, you serious? You addict. No, Twitter not, Twitter's on both my phones. Wow. What are you talking about? You're, so when I delete Twitter off my phone, I make my wife log into her Twitter on my Twitter on her account in case I don't have my phone with me and I'm with her and I gotta tweet something. Like, Jesus. Has anyone ever tried to have an intervention about social media with you? My fans do all the time, but I will never be intervened against. Okay, mm-hmm. The reality is they'll sit there and say that Twitter is horrible for me, but they can't take their eyes off it. They love it. Okay, I am the man in the Coliseum, and <laughs> though they may cry at the brutality that exists inside said Coliseum, they can't tear their eyes away from it. They love it. So is there an audience capture component? Um, yeah, audience capture I think is something everybody has to worry about. Yeah, Is it happening to you? No, I'm above it. How? Um, something I thought about a long time ago is the um, I've I've gone through a lot of like well when I was early in my life I went through a couple of major political shifts. The biggest one was probably transitioning from being like a hardcore Catholic to an atheist, and I spent a lot of time thinking about like um, what is the ideology I came from, where's the ideology I'm going, and how do I make it so that I don't get immediately captured by a new thing. After I transitioned from being Catholic to atheist, I read Ayn Rand for like a year, and I was like, holy, like I'm an objectivist. I'm gonna go support Ron Paul. I love this, and I realized afterwards, I'm like, man, I basically picked up the first philosopher I could if Ayn Rand is such, um, and I, I fully bought into all of their arguments, and then I realized that like i was very easily persuaded by every single philosopher person that i read um and so i was like okay i need to like build like some mental safeguards against just immediately being captured by all of these people and in my early life that was something i kind of thought of personally for development and then later on as life went through um when i started streaming and i got like an audience it's always something that i'm like very very careful about is i try to skirt a line very carefully between i don't want my audience to just agree with me because i say something um but I also need an audience that's not just going to shit on me relentlessly. So I walk a very careful line in terms of if I say certain things, you can go to my subreddit, you can find my audience fighting back against me. People don't agree with everything I say. Um, but like I try to like keep the anti-fans at bay. Um, I'm not scared to lose large chunks of my audience if I feel like an audience capture is happening. So there have been some big fights I've been in with prior figures, uh, Vosh and Hassan are two of them, to where I realized that like a large chunk of my audience were like socialists and communists. And I was totally okay just like axing half my audience because that's not a thing I want to play into. Um yeah, I, there's just there are a lot of like little mental checks and balances that I have to try to make sure that I'm not like going to find that like five years into the future I'm like oh my god like I don't think I even believe this stuff but I had to say it because my audience wanted me to say it. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean that's a good thing to be mindful of. It's also difficult to ha- to to navigate to ride that bucking horse when you're on it. Like I don't think the I don't think the key problem with audience capture is necessarily that you're going to say things that your audience doesn't 
that, that you don't believe because your audience believes them, but that you're going to be attracted to topics that you know generate heat for your audience. I don't think audience. there's anything wrong with generating heat from topics. That's fine. Like, I'll definitely talk about topical things more than non-topical things. The only thing that's scary is that sometimes, like, here's something that, here's a way that I've maneuvered myself. It's got some pros and some cons. So I am relatively ideologically homeless in that, like, I don't have, like, I am a progressive. Come watch me for that. Or I am a liberal. Or I am a whatever. Like, I am who I am. Stephen Bonnell, aka Destiny. Um, I've got a core set of principles that I believe in. And then from those core set of principles, here are my policy positions. I tend to align largely with the Democrat establishment socially i probably align fairly well with progressives but because that's how i identify i have a lot of flexibility to kind of grow and change as the years go on if somebody presents me a really good argument for why affirmative action is either really good or really bad then i'll change that's fine because i'm not beholden to a certain political ideology that i've like identified as so a lot of people like to identify certain ideologies because it gives them a lot of advantages they can gain a new audience very easily they can associate with other people very easily um, and then it gives them kind of like a playbook for what to think about certain topics so because I don't do that, obviously it insulates me from a lot of audiences and there's a lot of clout that I don't necessarily gain, but it gives me a lot more flexibility to um, honestly navigate my beliefs. Yeah. And that's a good answer. One of the things that I'm noticing on social media is that people who I, whose intellects I respect are becoming less and less broad-minded. I mean, I think uh, my buddy Sam Harris has said of Elon Musk many times, like, does anyone think that the, the worldview that Elon currently inhabits is more expansive than it was 10 years ago or more petty? And mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons Sam got off Twitter was precisely because it's having that function on on his own mind, right? Yeah. And he's saying, if this is happening to someone whose intellect I respect as much as I respect Elon Musk, what impact is it happening? Is it having on me? And even in the mm-hmm. even in so I, you know, without great fanfare or any particular principle, I just deleted the Twitter app off my phone. Although I still have an account, you know, like eight months mm-hmm. ago, so I spend a lot less time on it, and I barely post it all on social media anymore. And I was just going through some of your your tweets, and they are less interesting to me than they were two years ago like they seem more parochial um i don't know what that word means oh parochial means parochial parochial means like specific very specific to your own to the to the universe that one inhabits like localized like like narrow uh you know cut off expand my vocabulary cut off from like uh well that's this is a good test why don't i see what the the dictionary definition of parochial is uh but like you know less less um yeah having like a limited um or narrow outlook or scope originally it sounds like it was related to a church parish yeah there you go yeah um something that when it comes to like changing one's views in certain environments this is i gave a speech to a bunch of high schoolers i try to like there's like five broad things that i have like that have been pretty static throughout my entire life that i don't think i'm ever going to change my mind on and one of these five things i figured this out at a very early age thank god i don't know how or why i figured this out but i did and it's something that stuck with me for a long time is if somebody says something and i don't like it or i think it's stupid then my goal is to figure out why is this dumb and what's a better position but oftentimes what happens is is when somebody says something or does something that's stupid, you want to identify as the opposite thing that they have. And I think there are far too many people that fall into that trap of getting attacked by a certain political faction or getting attacked by a certain idea who are like, oh, well, I see how bad you guys are. I'm going to believe the opposite. And yeah, I think that Elon Musk and other people you know, run afoul of trying to prevent that from happening quite a lot. Yeah. But isn't part of the game of Twitter that someone pokes you and so then you own, own them? I don't mean you specifically, mm-hmm. but one does and you're particular you are particularly good at that and so the things that they poke you with 
become a determinant of the the sort of scope of your own vision. And if if you're in an environment in which people are poking you with more and more irrelevant and petty things about fringe figures in the world of Twitter, you find yourself slaying ever smaller dragons than you would. Yeah, if I mean you that's were possible. Reactive. It just depends. Yeah, I mean it depends on. Yeah, that just depends on. Yeah, for me, Twitter is like almost exclusively like fighting with people or whoever wants to <laughs> poke their head out on Twitter. Um, usually podcasts or things like like these are we're going to have like better discussions or if I go to set up like formal debates with people. But um, especially in between election seasons, it seems like Twitter, because the thing is, is like none of the dragons, none of the large dragons on Twitter are actually trying to fight with people. Usually like they'll tweet a little bit, but I think generally it's just there for them to promote themselves. You know, No, I don't mean dragons in terms of individuals. I mean dragons in terms of issues, right? So like, you know, there was a time pre-COVID when I would spend a lot of time on Twitter and I'd be having interesting arguments with people about some of the biggest questions, whether that's healthcare or you know climate change or whatever it might be. Uh, mm-hmm. And now I feel like I go on there, and there are lots of arguments about some person I've never heard of saying something about some other person that I've never heard of. That's what I mean by a small dragon. Oh, yeah, that can happen. Um, I don't even know what I've been. I don't know if I even. I feel like I've used Twitter less and less over the past year since Elon has taken over. So. Um, Let me see if I can find something on my Twitter. Oh, <laughs> well, like, okay. Can someone keep explaining to me why they keep referring to Surfer Girl as a model, or just posting pics on Instagram make you a model now? People are acting like she's doing this as a full time career. Am I missing something? Uh, is she even getting paid? Uh, so then, like, to someone to a normie like me, I would have to go and find out what the fuck you're talking about. Uh, oh yeah, who this is, that, is the who is that um, over chick? the Jonah Hill. Like, yeah, the Jonah Hill stuff. Did you right. ever hear anything about this? No, miss me. Oh yeah, well, uh, important discourse. <laughs> important okay. discourse. Uh, anyway, so there's a lot of, and you know, like uh, yeah, there's just the, there's a universe of like increasingly petty and narrow arguments between increasingly petty and narrow people, and I don't want to see your intellect get swamped into that. Sure. I think that something that might be playing into this a lot too, and it might feel like social medias are causing it, but it might actually not be social medias. It might actually be a consequence of where politics in the United States is right now. Um, On a really broad level, there's a few things happening in the US. One is despite all the criticisms and despite how much conservatives might say otherwise, Biden has done a really good job at being a relatively non-controversial, relatively uniting figure. Jimmy Dole would choose to disagree with you there. Yeah, I know he would. But like Biden hasn't like gone hard on Republicans much. That's why when you ask them about him, they'll like reference one speech he gave a year ago. Um, He's done a good job at doing bipartisan legislation. Uh, He's just, he's a really hard person to have strong feelings about. Even if you don't like Biden, it's really hard to be like, I hate Biden. Like, he just doesn't invoke that type of like strong feelings. So conservatives have no common enemy to rally behind. And then on the conservative side, um, their whole movement right now is kind of like catastrophized in like trying to figure out whether or not they're going to follow Trump off the edge of the earth. And it's like this Trump versus DeSantis thing. So with Biden not providing a lightning rod for conservatives to rally around to attack, and then with conservatives having no party figure to rally around, um, they have really had no real policy positions for like the last two years. If you look at conservative discourse, a lot of the times the arguments you might have on Twitter might revolve around like, what are the conservatives and the Democrats fighting about? Conservatives for the last year have not been talking about immigration. They haven't been talking about healthcare. They haven't even been talking about foreign policy that much, except to complain about money we send to Ukraine. It's like all been these stupid social issues, namely trans stuff and then grooming of kids, like for months and for over, I think for over a year now. And as a result of that, 
I mean, like, again, a lot of the conversations on Twitter will revolve around a lot of the political fights. Because conservatives have no positions right now besides fighting about trans people, there's just, like, not much to talk about politically there, I think. Mm, uh, that's interesting. Why that's like has, a gas uh, But why has transgender, why have transgender issues so captivated culture at the moment, particularly on the right? Is it, is it I mean, some people blame left-wing overreach and some people mm-hmm. blame right-wing bigotry. Is there another explanation? I just, I feel like Republicans just don't stand for much. Um, it might sound biased, but like even under, I mean, even under Obama, like uh, it was McConnell that said that like, you're right, that you're not going to get anything done. I'm going to obstruct you every step of the way. We don't even get a Supreme Court justice, which in the United States is a really big deal. Um, and then, you know, Trump didn't do anything. We were supposed to repeal and replace Obamacare. It didn't happen. No infrastructure bill, no legislation really at all, except for tax cuts. Um, and then Biden comes in and Republicans are just like, yeah, I hate everything he does. I don't like this guy or whatever, but they don't like, they don't really stand for anything anymore. They completely flipped on their whole like economic platform. Like if you remember the neocons, like the Bush era Republicans, like they were all like very much into big business and they liked immigration to some extent because of labor and everything. And now Republicans hate big business and they hate the government and they hate the Democrats and they hate um, Ukraine, and they hate foreign policy, and they hate like I, like they hate Hollywood. They just like hate everything. I don't even know what Republicans like about this country. I don't know if they if they like anything about this country. Like they all act like we need to have like a what the, it's called the Great Divorce. I think where some people are saying states need to secede from the union. So yeah, I don't know. I kind of it sounds like I'm coming down harshly on Republicans there, but I just I feel like they just define themselves as like hating woke people, hating Marxism, hating whatever. Yeah, and that's it. And then it all boils down to dumb like little social issues. Yeah. All right, I want to ask you about where this all heads. Uh, I will uh, for the for the free subscribers to my podcast i will bid them uh, adieu and uh, and thank you and for the uh, for the subscribers on my podcast feed uh the paid subscribers i want to ask you about the the future of goddamn civilization uh where <laughs> where are you if you're reading the tea leaves uh what happens next? To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations with Substack. Substack.